If you're here today and you missed the sermon two weeks ago, it would help if when you went home you listened to the sermon from a fortnight ago because we're going to do some messages off the back of the first one. Okay, so here we go. Insulted. He was insulted. Goliath insulted by this handsome young man coming towards him. Okay? Insulted because he's coming towards him. He looks unprepared for war. And he's coming at him with sticks. So he, he begins to get ready to attack this fella. David, for his part, runs towards Goliath. He runs towards him, armed with his sling, shoots this uh, stone about the size of a tennis ball, about 200 meters possibly, straight at Goliath, at... Anybody guess how, how fast these things flew? Pretty fast, I'd say. Pretty fast, at about 100 kilometers an hour. These were lethal. You must understand this. These were lethal weapons. They were, they were weapons of warfare, certainly for the Benjamite, uh, Benjamites. And he strikes Goliath in the only place that he had exposed on his forehead, and he knocks him out for the count. That's what we looked at last time. Took me 40 minutes to say that last time. Okay? Right. It's the most famous story in all the Bible, most probably. It's when the little guy takes on the big bully. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. And and comes off better off. Okay? Now, last time we did, we did what's called the exegesis. It's when we unpack the meaning of the text the original meaning of the text. Today we're doing what's called hermeneutics, which is we want to see what the interpretation is, what it means, and how it applies to us. We're going to, we're going to be asking, what is this story in the Bible for? Why is it there? What did We believe Samuel wrote this. Why did he write it? What, was it? what was his purpose? And the key thing we want to ask is two things. What was his primary purpose, and what was his secondary purpose? By primary we mean what was the first and most important reason he wrote this. Now I said to you two weeks ago, and I should have reminded you, sorry if I haven't, I asked you to think about what the purpose of this story was, what it means to us. Has anybody done any homework? Has anybody got any idea? You've been moving. Uh, uh, I should have said. You're ready. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Uh, Anybody got any idea? Thank you, Pam. You cannot oppose God and win. Good one. Okay, anybody else? Any, any other functions of this story? We're going to be looking at that in a roundabout way uh, in a couple of weeks, Pam. Anything else anyone else has come up with? There's nothing impossible. With God. There's nothing impossible. If you've got God on your side, another brilliant one. And no, nothing is impossible. I mean, this was seemingly impossible, wasn't it? Thank you. Anything else? If God is for you, Absolutely. And that was David's point. Anything else? We are to uphold the honour of our God. We are. there, And that's what we're going to look at today, Bron. We are to uphold the honour of our God. Thank you. Now, that all good answers. Sounds like a classroom, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's not, none of those are the primary truths. Of the, so they, they all come under the secondary category. What would you say is the primary purpose for which God has included this story in the Bible? Thank you. Well, like you say that everything leads to Jesus, 
in all of the stories. So there has to be a correlation between the bad guy and the good guy. You got it. So you got it. Okay, you can go home. Okay. <laughs> We don't need we don't need nobody's here, do we? Uh, let's just spoil your sermon. <laughs> yes, the primary truth here. And look, here's the thing. This is how we know the primary truth in this passage. The primary reason this is in the Bible is because of three words: Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I know that, and you know that, because of this verse in the Bible. And there's many more. Someone read that loudly, please. The scriptures of the Old Testament scriptures, what does Jesus say that the primary purpose and the main thing, the one thing you must find when you read the Old Testament? Him. Yeah, if you don't find Jesus, don't bother. You have to find Jesus. The primary purpose of this story is Jesus. But we're not going to do that. Okay. We're going we're gonna to start today with the secondaries, the, the outer truths. And we're going to work our way to the centre. Initially when I was writing this, I thought, oh, I'll do that all in one go. Uh, we're only going to do one secondary point today. Okay, so I think this is going to be a little mini-series, maybe three or four sessions. So we're going to look at each of the applications. We're going to start with the secondary. And our final sermon in about two or three weeks, uh, maybe four, will be Jesus, Jesus Jesus, we'll see how we go. I never know, you see. When I get on that keyboard, and I say this humbly and honestly, God, I believe God speaks to me. And, and I have to, I write those down, and I have to let God's Spirit speak to His church. It's my job, to, not to stand in His way, but to let Him speak. And so I believe God has given me this message for us as a church. So, we're going to start with the secondary, moving in towards the centre. Here's the four we're going to look at, and I might pick more. On, I'll pick up on some of the ones we heard today. I think that will be incorporated, but we may even get a special heading just for what you said. But the ones I've got in mind that we're going to look at is the kingdom needs people who are passionate for God's honour. The kingdom needs people willing to use their skill sets. The kingdom needs people with informed faith, and the kingdom needs the final one. A Davidic Messiah. That's the Jesus angle. The kingdom needs a Davidic Messiah. So we'll begin with the first one today. I'm going to take our whole morning up, not the whole morning, the whole of our session, don't get worried, <laughs> with this first one. The kingdom needs people who are passionate for God's honour. Verse 26 and verse 45. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? This guy is a Philistine, okay? And removes this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And verse 45, listen to this. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Do you feel the passion, the indignation? This is, these words aren't tame. This is, a, this is a David who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of indignation 
towards this man and the people that he represents. And it's that that is the catalyst for taking him out. This leads to David taking him out, ultimately, terminally. And so we're going to ask the question, why? Why is he so worked up, so passionate, so indignant, that he puts his life on the line when nobody else would? What's behind him? And he can answer. What is it? What, what, what's bothering David? It doesn't bother anybody else, does it? It doesn't bother Saul. Why is it bothering David? What is it? He, yes, he has an anointing from God. Okay, that's arousing this passion. What are the details? A bit of detail. Anyone? We'll do it together. We'll do it together. We'll do it together. It's relationship. Relationship with God. It's based on that. It is, it, it is that indeed. Look, this is it. We have to understand who Israel is at this juncture. Not today, at that juncture. Israel was, at that junction in human history, the chosen people of God. That's a big, big title. The chosen people of God. Chosen not because of anything unique about them. This is something you have to understand about God's choosing. And he, say, he says this to them in Deuteronomy 7. Look, I haven't chosen you because you're wonderful, so get that out of your mind. Look, he says, I haven't chosen you because you're great. Look, you're the few, you're the smallest tribe on the planet. But I've chosen you because I love you. I love you. God's choice is based on God alone. There's nothing in Israel at this moment for God to choose them. But he has chosen them. He's he's loved them. He's chosen them. And this is what he's chosen them for. It's at least fourfold. He's chosen them to enjoy something of the Eden that's been lost. That's what the promised land was about. He's chosen them, of all the people on the planet, to enjoy something of the Eden that was lost. He's chosen them to know him. Do you know up until that point, no nation on the earth knew God. They're all lost and blind. And God chose Israel to know him. He revealed himself to them. He rescued them and he chose them to know him. He chose them to model what he expects of all humanity. He showed them what he expects. And he chose them to model that to the nations. And lastly, God chose them to be his judicial arm. On the earth. God chose Israel to be the means through which his judgment and justice was to be brought about on our planet. And you see, when you look at it like that and appreciate why God had chosen Israel. And then then when you understand that God had already looked upon the Philistine people and deemed them unworthy to exist, deemed them unworthy to live in the land, it sort of makes sense. As Exodus 23, God says, I will establish to Israel your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. It was judicial. It was God saying, those people no longer have the right to remain in that land because of the atrocities they were committing in the land. And I'm sending you Israel as an extension of my justice to oust them and to take their place. Incidentally, God says to them, and it's very interesting, I can't go into it now, 
That was conditional. Israel's ownership of the land was conditional. And the minute they crucified Jesus, they forfeited everything that came with the land. That's a big subject I haven't got time to go into now. But at least this juncture, it was theirs by right. And here's what Joshua 13 says. When Joshua was old, Joshua was the military commander who led Israel on their expeditions of justice. Okay, When he was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, you are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains all the regions of the Philistines. So Israel had entered the promised land. They judicially cleansed the land of the nations, but they hadn't judicially cleansed the land of the Philistines at this juncture. And so now, here's the scenario. Here are the Philistines. And they're defying Israel. And David comes, and David knows the Scriptures. He knows why they're chosen. And he's listening to this man, and what is he thinking? You don't belong here. God Almighty, your creator has deemed you unworthy to be here. How dare you withstand God? That's what David is saying. That's the context. That's what arouses his anger. He's, it's for the justice of God, for the honour of God, for the name of God. And so David, why is David so upset? Because these people have been deemed by God as unworthy to continue to exist. And it's his role, well, it's the role of the Israelite army to bring about God's divine justice. What do we do with that? Hey, do, you know, I, do you mind? Sorry, folks, I really need some water. Would someone just grab me some, please? Thank you. Uh, is it open? Pick the keys down here. That's why David is indignant. That's what arose him. What do we do with it? Because it's not very, it's not very PC, is it? I mean, it's, it's not the kind of thing that we talk about. We don't want to hear about blood and guts and people going to war and, and people being, you know, you know, you know, run out of their lands and massacred and everything else. You know, it's not what we do today. And so the question remains, you know, well, 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 what do we do with this? Is there any place in the new covenant, the covenant of grace that we dwell in? Is there any place for this kind of indignation? This kind of passion? This kind of response? It's a question we want to ask ourselves. Is there any place in the new covenant church for conduct of this nature? I want you to think about that. Because I want to show you the master of our faith, Jesus Christ. And I want to show you how he conducted himself. I know we, we said at Christmas, we love to imagine him as this coddling cute baby. Thanks, Peter. But listen to him. Watch Jesus. This is a picture. This is a screenshot of Jesus. When it was almost time for the Passover, Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! 
something like that in Aramaic get these out of here how dare you turn my father's house into a market he said it's something like that it's the emphasis and force of the text here you can see, can you, when we're going to go later, how the, the, the Davidic and the Messianic connection, when Jesus encounters something that challenges the honour of his Father. What's Jesus' response? Passionate indignation. Passionate indignation. And when you look at Jesus, this isn't an isolated case. Seriously, you read him, you, you see how he responds, particularly to the religious establishment of all people, to the religious establishment, the Pharisees and, and, the, and, and the lawmakers. He is absolutely, passionately angry with them. And beyond Jesus, so we see that in Jesus' ministry. Oh, he can get passionate like David. We see it in the apostles too. If you, if you scan through the New Testament, you see, let me take Peter, Stephen, not one of the twelve, but one of the apostles, one of the early disciples, key disciples. Stephen, when, when, when he gave his talk before the Sanhedrin, before the, the religious establishment, he goes through the whole history of Israel, and at the end of his talk, here's what he says. You listen to this. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, where have you heard that before? David. David. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This isn't done in, hey, hi, mate. Hey, how's he hanging? How's things going? How you doing? You know, uh, what's up? Uh, you know, it's not a good thing what you're doing here. It's not that, is it? It's, this, this, is, this is passionate. There's a lot of anger, righteous anger. And so we have to, we have to ask, what day will we see in David? How relevant is it in the New Testament? Let me show you some more. Remember when Peter, uh, is it Peter? Uh, yeah, Peter, when he comes across Simon the sorcerer, and, and, and he wants to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul. Is passionately indignant with him. When I got a couple more here. When when Paul is followed by the slave girl and she keeps telling everybody, "Oh, these are men from God," Paul arrives with anger, casts the demon out of her, and take these two apostles. Who are the two greatest apostles of the New Testament? The two big, big wigs, Peter and Paul. Take Galatia chapter two. What do you have? Peter, Paul says. I stood before him face to face and told him exactly what I thought about what he's doing. Paul! In fact, Paul and Barnabas, remember those two, the meek guy? They had such a strong argument that they departed. And so, friends, I think here's the point, is we can't just relegate David's response to Goliath as an Old Testament thing that they used to do back in the day that we don't do in the New Covenant. Because when you look at the New Covenant, people, Jesus included, oh, there's room for passion. 
all this room for indignation, all this room for action. And in fact, Jesus said these very words to to the disciples in his most famous sermon. He said these words in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. His inspiring passion for the things that are right, for the things that honor God. His inspiring calling for people who get passionate about unrighteousness, who are seeking the honour and the justice of God. And so the one message we have to say when we look at David as a secondary message is that he does teach us that it's okay on occasions to be passionate, to feel indignation, to get upset, to be worked up to the point where we have to do something. It shows us that there may be a time when passion and indignation has to lead to action. And so I wonder, here's what I wonder, I wonder a lot of things, but here's one of the things I wondered this week. I wonder, and David's reaction to Goliath must make us wonder, maybe too often we are too accommodating. Maybe too often we are too passive, too tolerant. And I think we're going to... you know at that point, that's question seven, how ought we to respond to horrible things? We've just done that for the kids. I think at this point... Hey, kids, so you can now do the activities at the back, back of your sheet, or the activities that, that Catherine has given you, so you might really enjoy that doing that now. So I'm just going to carry on talking to the adults for the remainder of our time together. As I was saying, I wonder if we're too accommodating, too passive, too tolerant. Here's one example. I want you to just look at the screen there. Abortion is defined as the termination of a pregnancy by the removal or expulsion of an embryo or fetus from the uterus resulting in death. There are 50 million abortions every year in our world. It's almost the population of Great Britain. Does that upset us? Yes. yes. But two, more, two more questions. Does that upset us? Yes. Do we get passionately indignant? Yes. Yeah. Do we act to curtail these atrocities? That's the third question. Do we act to curtail these atrocities. You see, we can get upset and we can get passionate. But do we put our money where our mouths are? When was the last time we did something for unborn children that can't defend themselves? I'll leave that with you, okay? Look, we get upset, yes. We get passionate, yes. 
do we act on it? David didn't just get upset with Goliath. He picked up five stones and he ran for him at the danger of his own life. But I haven't finished my sermon. <laughs> you may not be glad to hear. <laughs> okay, because it gets complicated. It gets complicated. I know that. Look, what is the best response? And, 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 and this thing, we have to take it case by case by case. There's no universal standard. How we deal with abortion act may differ to how we deal with or some other act. Okay, so it's, you know, we have to deal with it case by case by case. But if David teaches us anything, is that a person indwelt by the Spirit, as Saul demonstrated, can never sit back when God's honour and His righteousness is challenged. We can never just sit back. It's, if the story teaches us one thing, however complicated our actions may be, we can't just sit back. But, 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 here's what we have to remember. Unlike David, we are not God's judicial arm to bring about His justice to the earth in the way that David and his army were called. Our calling is different. We have to understand that. So we have to remember our warfare, we are called to warfare, but it's not with a sword or even a sling. Our warfare, says Ephesians, is what? Is not against flesh and blood. We have to remember that. We are not David in the exact same sense. We are not warring against humans. This is not an old covenant. We're in a new covenant. We are not David cleansing our world from Goliaths. We are not David in that sense. We have to remember that the people out there, unlike the Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people, in our context, the people out there, and I've already prayed for them, are not our enemies. Number one. However indignant we are about what's going on, the people themselves, those individuals, are not enemies. They are mere human people, just like us, sharing our planet, but who have and who may have been taken hostage by our adversary, the devil, and being used by him to commit these atrocities. And in reality, who themselves are victims. Needing, not our slings and swords, but our loving, prayerful ministry. It's ministry that we're called to, not warfare. And I think that's something we have to understand. There's to be action, but the action that we're to engage in is ministry, not warfare. And here's what Jesus said. We've already quoted Jesus for the indignation he showed in unrighteousness. But I want to show you what he, how he talks about how generally we deal with things. Here's what he said, Matthew 5. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic... Give him your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? As much as he's demonstrated that there are moments when our passion and indignation may result in some form of action, what Jesus says that generally, generally, our actions have to be tempered. It's what he's saying here. Uh, that we have to remember that that person who's passed that legislation is not himself the devil. He is just a victim of the, of the devil that we're opposing, who's taken a hold of him, and is using him to do evil. And I think we have to have that distinction in place. That there are real people out there who are hostages to Satan's devices. Our struggle is not against the people, it's against the rulers and the powers that are behind the people. And it's important to remember that, and therefore our response to people out there must always be tempered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, this is what he said, when Peter, when Peter thought, no, I've got to get the sword out. Remember when they tried to arrest Jesus? And Peter forgot everything that Jesus taught him for three years. He forgot everything he taught him and he got out his sword, he grabbed the sword and what did he do? And what did Jesus say? Put it away, Peter! No! Haven't you listened to anything I've said to you? It's not how you do things. Put away your sword. For the one who draws the sword will die by the sword. Friends, we do not fight fire with fire. That is not Jesus' way. That's his point here. So we don't, we go back to our point in the, in the abortion act. We don't burn down abortion clinics. Please. Yes, sir, absolutely. So that's the point here. We don't burn down abortion clinics. We don't issue physicians involved in abortions with death threats. No. no. And we don't beat up on those dear women for reasons we don't understand, that we can't comprehend, who've chosen this pathway for their unborn child. We don't beat up on them. They're not the enemies. And so you can see, can't you? We have to be very careful in our hermeneutics of the Old Testament. I always tell people, the students when I'm doing the theology course, the Old Testament is the hardest part of the Bible to apply to the Christian. Because it was in a different covenant to a different people. We have to be very careful how we do hermeneutics with the Old Covenant. We're not burning down doctor's surgeries. The kingdom needs people who are passionate for God's honour. Christian, get passionate, but don't get even. Get passionate, do things, act, but we don't fight fire with fire. They may abuse us verbally, we don't abuse them back. There's a response that we see in Jesus that challenges what we see in David. And so we don't fight fire with fire. We don't fight, throw, throw firebombs or cast them with our tongues. Both can do injury. What we do instead, friends, is get down on our knees. The first course of action when we see something unrighteous, the very first thing you do is you drop to your knees. Immediately. God, have mercy on our world. What a, and you're a part of that. The first thing we do 
is we fall to our knees. We take some ownership of it. It's our world too. We, we're the part of this human civilization that's passing these laws. They're like us. We fall down on our knees and we plead for them. Remember when Moses' people were doing terrible things towards God? Moses pleaded and he put himself God. He says, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. So we take a form of ownership of it. We fall on our knees. We plead with mercy from God. We ask for mercy. We do intercession with God. And then, and then, and only then, after careful meditation and consideration, assisted by the wisdom of our peers and the support of other godly men and women, we take a measured response to the atrocities. We fall on our knees in prayer. Indignation is followed by prayer, meditation or consideration, the gathering of wisdom of others around us, the support of other godly men and women. We wish, sound it. Don't ever do anything just by yourself. Please, sound it out. Share it with other godly people. Pray with them about it first. Take a measured response. And ultimately, finally, Christian, there has to be a response. I think David teaches us that. Jesus teaches us that. The apostles teach us that. There finally has to be a response. Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace. No matter how bad the thing is that's been done. We don't fight fire with fire. We fight it with grace. Let your conversations always be full of grace. Season with salt so you may know how to answer Everyone. The kingdom needs people who are passionate for God's glory. Look, I need to finish. Just give me a couple of minutes and I'll round this up. I want to give you an example on how to do this. A real life example. Here's a book called Pastors for Dummies. Pastors for Dummies. It's the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote to Timothy. Pastors for Dummies. He tells you how to deal when you... He's talking to pastors. This is how you deal with people in your church now who wind up the pastor. Okay? Not that you would ever do that. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is what Paul writes to dummies like me, telling us how we deal with that. Listen to this. And the Lord's servant, the pastor, must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, even when they're horrible to him. Catherine. Uh, <laughs> Catherine's never been horrible to me. Uh, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. He must be able to teach. It's a key quality of being a pastor. Not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Gently instruct. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses, and escape, listen to this, escape the tra- from the trap of the devil who has taken them, church members, who's taken them captive to do his will. Hey guys, gently and lovingly, you know, make sure, you know, watch how you challenge your leaders. They're not unchallengeable, but watch how you do it. Do it gently, graciously, lovely, because we can unwittingly be instruments of the devil. And the reason I show you that is not because I'm trying to protect myself from you guys. You guys are wonderful. 
most of the time, all of the time. Okay, it's because look, can you see the point? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the principalities and the powers behind the action, behind what's going on. I'll give you an illustration very quickly. I haven't got time because my, my time has run out. Do you know about Jim Elliot? I'll be quick. you know about Jim Elliot? Jim and Elliot, what, what was his wife's name? Jim and Elizabeth Elliot? Fantastic missionaries to Ecuador, to the Orca people. Jim always wanted to be a missionary. They went out as missionaries. He went and served the Orca people, okay, trying to reach them with the gospel. He and four others went out one day talking to the Orca Indians. Who? Murdered them, assassinated them, martyred them. You know what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot and, and Saint, Nate Saint's wife, the two of them, do you know what they did two years later? Went and lived with them, Sarah. The people who had murdered their husbands, the two wives and their children, went and lived with them. Do you know why? To get even. Listen, I'm reading this. I've got this from a source. Not to get even, but to love them for Jesus. Not to get even, but to love them for Jesus. And after moving to the village, Elizabeth began to teach the Orca Indians from the Bible her forgiveness and acceptance of the tribe of what led to them to accept Jesus into their hearts and lives. She told them about forgiving fearlessly and loving tremendously, which forever transformed their lives. You want to transform that world out there? Love them. Get angry when you see unrighteousness, but temper it in prayer and the love and grace of Jesus, because your warfare is not against them. Jesus says, I tell you, love them and pray for them. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Love them and pray for them. The kingdom needs people who are passionate for God's honour, people who take action when the situation calls for it, but people who are smothered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and whose actions are performed in the deepest heartfelt love. That's one of the secondary messages of the David and Goliath scenario. Amen.